Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Jack, and this week, Kanisha, Madeline, Maya, Skyla, and I spoke with Allison Gash and Daniel Tischner, political science professors at University of Oregon and co-authors of Democracy's Child, Young People and the Politics of Control, Leverage, and Agency. Democracy's Child is a sweeping and innovative study that places young people at the heart of pivotal conflicts, decisions, and transformations in American politics, and our conversation was similarly sweeping. We talked at length about the power and possibility of Gen Z, especially coming off of the 2022 midterms and how young people can flex our collective muscles to be increasingly at the center of politics and impact issues. So many political decisions are made for young people without our direct input, and that cannot stand. Our generation wants to pave the way for change in our democracy. And to do so, we want to better understand the history of youth activism, both its successes and shortcomings, and how we can both build upon and differentiate ourselves from prior movements. We talked about how much voice teens really do have, how to keep a focus on youth beyond the time of elections when our votes are needed, and how to get beyond the limiting belief that young people don't have the capacity developmentally to engage fully in politics and public affairs. We talked about how to make politicians understand that they have to care about what we care about and how we need to create politics by young people, not just for young people. What young people learn at pivotal ages stays with us. It doesn't just influence us in the moment, it transforms us. This is why education is so hotly contested, because the values that youth adopt can be threatening to the status quo. And let's threaten it together. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. My name is Jack Flanagan. I'm a high school senior. Um, I've been with NextGen for I think about two years now. I started uh, with a civic action project surveying freedom of expression in New York City Public Schools. So we distributed a survey and found a number of interesting results. Some that said that, that would suggest freedom of expression is okay and others that would suggest it wasn't. So we sort of concluded that we were in a middle ground. Um, and then since doing that research project, I've moved on to being uh, on the podcast. And I'm really, really excited today to learn more about uh, your work and to, to hear about sort of how young people can be placed at the center of these big political issues that impact a lot of us every day. I know that as a member of the debate team and the political club and having visited the U.S.-Mexico border and being a member of sort of a border activism club we have at my school, how, how I as a young person can impact any of these is really on my mind a lot. And so I'd be excited to learn your findings and hear what you have to say about it. Hi, my name is Kanisha, and I'm a high school senior from Queens, New York, and in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator at YVote, and today uh, I think we can all kind of agree that everyone in this room is interested in, you know, young people taking action and are, you know, the agency of our generation when it comes to just, like, being involved in politics, being involved in our communities, um, and just work generally in that arena. I think you can see, you know, like coming off the midterm elections, I know this podcast is going to be released a little later, um, but you can definitely see what youth involvement did in an election as big as this. Um, And I think, I mean, there's a lot of other examples you can point to, to show how powerful I think the youth voice is, and increasingly so. Hi, everyone. My name is Madeline Mays, and I'm a high school senior from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow at our civic fellowship. And um, I'm extremely, extremely interested and fascinated by freedom of expression. And I'm really interested in analyzing um, historically how young people have been involved in making change. 
and how much we can learn from the successes and failures. Hi everyone, my name is Maya and I'm a senior in high school from Iowa City, Iowa, and this is my first year on the podcast. I'm super excited for today's conversation as a young person who's interested in politics and civic discourse, obviously. Um, at school, I'm involved with activities like debate, journalism, and then I'm also in my state's Youth Congress. So I love talking and thinking about how young people can be advocates and how we can influence the political processes today. Um, also, like what Madeline said, I'm super interested in exploring the history of youth activism and political involvement. Um, and how like Gen Z can differentiate itself or is similar to past generations of young advocates, um, such as those who protested, you know, Vietnam or who were part of the civil rights movement even. So I think that would be a really interesting thing to talk about. So I'm very excited for today's conversation. Hi, my name is Skyla. I'm from Queens. This is my first year on the podcast as well. Um, like everyone said, I'm super interested in how young people can pave the way for new change within our democracy. But also too, I'm interested in how we could teach young people how to get involved in politics in a positive way. First of all, I just wanna thank everyone for having us here. Um, I think this is great. Um, my name is Allison Gash. Um, I'm a professor at University of Oregon. Um, I do a lot of work on um, civil rights, particularly in the context of race, gender, uh, sexuality and uh, disability, um, and focusing quite a bit now on um, young people, young people, particularly in the context of uh, social justice and social policy, um, and then also looking a little bit at, at, at sort of the intersection of, of public policy in the courts and um, and how young people's issues are, are prominently um, uh, debated uh, in those spaces and what that actually uh, might mean. Um, and I'm really, really excited and really honored to be here to talk with you all um, about the work, about the work that Dan and I have done in this book, about um, some of the stuff that we're planning for the future, um, how we got here, um, but also really just to dig into uh, hearing your insights. Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Tishner. I'm also a professor at, of political science at the University of Oregon, and I have done a lot of work on immigration politics and policy and on social movements, especially struggles for immigrant rights, um, for the civil rights movement and the labor movement. And I also do a lot of work on the future of democracy um, and democratic politics and institutions. Actually, let me start with, with a great setup that Madeline, you raised when you were interested in the different roles of young people in our democratic politics. And I would say that in philosophy, in political science and a lot of other work, traditionally the focus is on how young people are governed or controlled or ignored by the polity, by the government. And um, one of the things that, that Allison and I try to capture in this book is indeed areas where there is control, um, where there's efforts to, to govern young people, but also to think about um, in addition to that, areas where young people are weaponized in our politics, when young people, for instance, are used as bargaining chips or collateral. Think about, for instance, um, young migrants at the border during the Trump years, where, you know, we all, at least many of us know about kids in cages where young people were, were separated from their parents 
And we had our attorney general at the time, you know, say very clearly, this is to disincentive, disincentivize, to create a discouragement for migrants to cross the border without authorization. And so we had that, you know, appalling um, um, outcome where hundreds and hundreds of, of young people were, were separated from their parents, including, you know, little toddlers and so forth. Um, but there's lots of examples that we talk about in the book about how, um, in essence, children and young people are used um, as collateral in our political life. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was going to say um, what I love about all these questions is that um, they they touch on things that we're trying to do in the book. Um, you know, um, Kanisha, your question about, um, you know, how adults figure into this to this space. Um, you know, there was another question about, you know, history um, and how history relates to the moment that we're seeing now. And I think one of the really important things that we wanted to do with this project was to talk about how, um, you know, there, there, there tends to be sort of a periodic and sporadic interest in young people, um, especially around elect election season, right, especially um, in terms of, right, the sort of like ongoing question, you know, will they show up? You know, will they actually vote? Um, you know, and then the and then the sort of competing struggles around, you know, the the um, fight for increased voter enfranchisement for uh, younger and younger um, uh, people, right? Decreasing the voting age, you know, first eighteen, and and then and now the pushes for sixteen. Um, but there doesn't ever seem to be a lot of focus on young people outside of these moments of elections. And one of the things that our book really does is it highlights, um, you know. A couple of really important things, which is that a young people have always been central in American political reform, always. Um, so one of the things that we set out to accomplish was to really sift through um, American history and to look at the, the most pivotal moments in American history um, to see where young people uh, were situated. Right. How did they figure into these uh, really important political moments? Um, and what we found out was it's really hard to find an important moment in American history where young people didn't figure into those moments in really important ways. And um, I don't know if, any, if you guys want to jump in, but I was just going to follow up too. you know, Madeline and Maya, you both, you know, were invoking history. And, you know, um, Alice and I would be very happy to kind of talk about some of these uh, historical examples from the book. But one area I think Allison captured really well about how there's these patterns, you know, um, Mark Twain said, "History never repeats. History never repeats itself. It often rhymes." We have lots of rhymes that we can point to, um, but there are some key sea changes. So historically, we have lots of examples of really powerful, important movements in which the role of young people was particularly transformative. The labor movement is an example um, from the civil rights movement. Um, at a certain point, when the struggle. Um, uh, uh, was really challenged in getting enough adults to actually um, uh, take the lead. This something called the Children's Crusade, which I think a lot of you already know about, was an example of where kids ages five through through seniors in high school um, marched um, facing fire hoses and dogs and so forth. And the images of these young children who were cast by the media as innocents um, uh, on the front lines ended up being really critical. Um, but what's striking is that once young people have voting rights, 
it's no longer just movement activity. That is activism outside of, of kind of the realm of the ballot box and um, having a seat at the table. What's striking is in the past, um, Alice and I point in the book to lots of examples of heroic, powerful, young leaders in movements, but they didn't have access to the vote. Today's young people could cast their ballots and really make a difference in that regard. Okay. So I did have a few things that uh, what both of you were saying just made me think of. Um, for me, and this is coming as someone who is politically involved, is having political discourse, believes in democracy, um, it feels very difficult for youth to have individual voice in politics. It, it feels very much like a trend, right? You can't really start it yourself. I mean, you could, but it takes a lot. But it's much easier to hop onto something, a movement that already exists. And I think it makes individual issues that are related to public policy very difficult to tackle, um, even if they're ones that most people are facing or most people relate to. Um, it's just not streamlined enough. I'm not sure if I'm posing this as a question, but more of a thought. But um, how much does do teens really have voice? It, it makes me think about that because I know that we have a voice and I know that we have power um, to make change absolutely. And we've seen that time and time again, um, but really to what extent? I think that's a really great question. And I think um, that's a really fair question because young people, you know, they occupy this very tenuous space in um, American democracy where, you know, you, you are both at the same, you know, at the same time, you are, um, subjects of the state. You are dependents of the state. Um, and with that comes a set of resources that you get, and then a set of regulations that really, you know, greatly impede the kind of freedoms that you have, right? And so you don't have the same kinds of liberties and rights that adults do, right? Especially when it comes to voting. Um, and yet, right, the reality is that there's more and more and more responsibilities that are being placed on your shoulders, right? Some of them are financial responsibilities, and then some of those are, you know, carrying the, the costs of the sorts of policy investments that um, past generations have made or, or haven't made, right? Um, like the environment is a great example of that. Um, and so, you know, the question around, you know, what kind of voice do you have, um, you know, I think on the one hand, um, you know, there's, there's, there's this thing called the expectations game, right? And so in politics, the expectations game is always, um, it's, it's a really valuable game to play, right? And, and sort of paradoxically, um, the lower expectations that people have of you in a way, like the more, the more power you have, right? Because when you defy expectations, people pay attention, right? Um, and so the, the the thing that constantly works for young people is that, you know, adults are constantly counting them out. Um, and so in a way like the, the, you know, it's not an awesome answer to your question uh, because I think you're right to have um, frustration, right? At the fact that you feel like you don't have a voice because in a way um, the state is sort of set up to not give you a lot of voice, especially when you're not voting. But you can use that to your advantage, right? You can use the fact that people expect you not to have stuff to say 
to be to 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 screen the loudest, right? You can use the fact that the expectations are counted against you to actually flip that narrative and say, no, I'm actually I have a lot to say, right? I have a lot of stuff that's really important, and I'm going to continue to talk until people listen to me. Um, just just to add really quickly, I think also, Madeline, you've seized on a fundamental philosophical issue. So so if we can become philosophy geeks for just a minute, um, you know almost all of the leading uh, philosophical justifications for um, controlling and limiting the freedoms of, of young people are premised on the idea that um, children up to a certain age lack the physical, emotional, and intellectual maturity to be independent and to engage as fully-fledged members of the polity with all the rights as everyone else. Um, so the argument, whether it's Locke or John Stuart Mill or others, is that um, interventions by adults and the government to limit the freedom of young people is legitimate so, so long as the aims um, are benevolent. That is, so long as it's designed to help young people be fully developed um, um, rational beings. Here's the dilemma. How, how does the state know when someone's fully developed, right? We just pick an arbitrary age. So we say, well, you know, to vote, it's 18. To drive a car, it's 16, and so on and so forth. But all the, the, the age actually is a very poor measure about people's capacities, right? Human beings' capacities and rationality. So the state has done this as kind of an easy fix to a really um, thorny dilemma about when do you know? So why do we have, I mean, we all know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, maybe much younger as well, who are very rational, who are very capable, um, who could exercise um, lots of excellent decisions in the voting place, um, but are denied that because, and so, you know, um, relatedly, Madeline and, and, and Jack, you both talked about um, the issue of uh, freedom of expression. We have all kinds of limitations on freedom of speech for young people, presumably in their interest. But the question we should ask is, in whose interest? Sometimes it's premised in the interest of the young person, but it can be other interests involved. And so if you get past a certain age, all of a sudden those um, free speech rights are so much more capacious or so much broader than when you're younger. Yeah. Um, so I was just going to follow up a little bit on what you guys were saying um, about like the role that young people play in society and how it's this kind of weird middle ground. Um, so I know that like just in general, I mean, this has been the case all as like for as long as politics has existed, I'm sure. Um, but there's like often a, there's like this very clear rhetoric among politicians that a lot of times what they're doing is for young people. And I think as young people have expressed and kind of like what Madeline was saying, a lot of times those things don't necessarily align with the wishes of young people. Right. Like you saw one of the reasons, you know, the so-called like red wave didn't happen this election like we were saying earlier was because young people voted so democratic and were like this is what we actually believe in and this is what we want you to do um so i just wanted to ask a bit about like just i guess from your guys experience like how politicians should be listening to young people and meeting the goals of young people because they obviously have like a wide range of constituents and probably have fair amount of like views to appease to but right like how much weight should the youth voice have when it comes to these decisions politicians are making 
I think I love this question, um, and I want to I want to sort of um, address it and then also flip it a little bit um, into um, a, a question that will or an answer that will address that question and then also pivot it a little bit um, to think about something else. So, um, you know, the the really interesting question, I think, um, is is, of course, politicians should be listening to young people. Um, and of course, we also have this sort of paradox of politicians making the argument that what they're doing is uh, beneficial for young people. One of the things that that we are hoping that young people take away from this book is that you need to always be watchful of um, the rhetoric that politicians are using on your behalf, because a lot of times, despite the fact that they're making an argument that this is about your interests, the reality is, and, and we we show this really clearly in our book, the reality is that it's not always um, in your interest, right? Even, even when you are the subjects of policies themselves, the reality is that, right, again, there's there's a whole, right, there's there's a whole mountain of evidence that really identifies the ways in which young people are cited as the subjects of policies, but are not really um, the beneficiaries of those policies, right? That that in fact those policies run counter to um, what actually young people actually want. Um, and then the other thing is that you know thinking about um, you know we're doing a lot of thinking about which young people, right? So um, so you know, we've been talking sort of writ large about sort of young people generally, but the reality is that lurking in these policies are conversations about which young people are valued more over other young people. You know, there are certain kinds of demographics, right, that are being privileged in these conversations about young people. Um, and so really, we need to think about how young people are othered in really particular ways in the context of policies that claim to be um, for for the benefit of, 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 of youth generations, in, in this instance, Gen Z. I'd actually be really interested to sort of pull on that thread a little more. I was hearing a lot about how, you know, teens have voice and how we've been organizing and how we really shifted this election, right? And, and that the, the stream of analysis through this conversation has been that this may be a turning point because we really have now sort of shown our voice and been like, this is this is who we are, we have a voice and we're gonna use it. Um, I'd be interested to know if with the rise of social media or perhaps with other economic or social factors, if teens and, and young adults, but perhaps especially people who can't vote, have become more politically active than they have been in the past. Great question. Um, I think a good place to start with that is, um, you know, something I mentioned uh, at a few moments ago, which is that we've had insurgency, we've had movement, ener uh, movement energy and activism by young people throughout most of our history. Um, but the ability to vote for a while was limited to 21 and older. When it, so in 1971, when it shifts to including those who are 18 and over, initially the first election, 1972, had over half, just slightly over half, of of that younger demographic vote and then it went steadily down so the rap after that was that young people are apathetic they're just not voting and so forth and a lot of polls showed that there was concerns about among young people with certain kind of disenchanted like their voices weren't being heard and so forth and if you fast forward during the obama election there was again kind of an electrifying of young voters and starting to turn out in bigger numbers and then in 2018, 
another midterm election, you started to see those numbers swell. 2020, um, it's there were a number of key demographics for Biden winning, but clearly um, without Gen Zers, Biden probably would not have won um, the election in 2020. And we already talked about 2022. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about this is not just the impact of the vote, but what issues matter to young people. And so if you look at a lot of national surveys and exit polls and so forth, you probably have heard this ad nauseum, people were galvanized over inflation. They were upset about abortion, um, uh, uh, immigration, if you were on the right, and so forth. So they're kind of a set of what are the most important issues. Those were not the same for Gen Zers. They were overlaps, but not in the same, the same extent. So for instance, climate, which was something that didn't register for most outside of Gen Z, Zers, um, was very important for younger voters. And I think it's much more recent um, in, in our reckoning um, in terms of like, you know, um, the last decade where you see much more evidence of that. Um, so Allison, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the moment that we're in right now is that in a very real way, young people um own the way we communicate um, in terms of, you know, in terms of social media, right? So, so when you're thinking about, you know, how, how do we market, uh, you know, a particular uh, perspective or how do we, um, how do we really uh, interact with um, the, the polity, right? Um, it's really through social media. It's really through um, these very specific um, kinds of platforms and venues, and young people own those spaces, right? I mean, one one of the really interesting things that Dan and I are are like struggling with right now, as you know, as as older people, um, is right. We, we want people to we want people to read our book. We want people to to talk to us like you guys are talking to us about these issues, and we both we're both like we need a young person to be able to like penetrate those spaces um, so that we can get, you know, the word out that we're doing this stuff. And that's exactly what I think we're, we're seeing or what we've seen, what we've been seeing, I think in the last, you know, eight to 10 years when social media becomes the pivotal space where issues are talked about, young people control those spaces. They are the leaders in those spaces, right? They, they control the dialogue, they control the dialect, right? They control the format that becomes the most coherent and, and attractive ways of uh, talking about and, and selling specific uh, positions. And so because young people are leaders in those spaces, um, they're really setting the tone for how we think about things and how we talk about things. And so um, and so this sort of gets back to, to the question that was asked earlier about, you know, how do young people get a voice by by owning those spaces? I mean, that's that's pretty wonderful and that's pretty awesome. And it makes adults dependent on young people. Yeah, I think that's so cool how like adults have to think about how young people interact with the world now. Um but yeah, this question is kind of circling back to the one I posed during the introductions, but I'm just like so confused slash intrigued by why young people are like, I think generally seen as more progressive than their peers, but then over time, the country hasn't seen that much material change in terms of progressive policies in government. Yeah, such a great question. It's complex and we can't do it justice um, in a quick answer, but you know, there's lots of examples that we tracked historically of 
youth who were extremely radical when they were young. And then, you know, say, for, for, for example, in the 60s, you know, those who were anti-war protesters, who by the time they're in their 40s, they're like working on Wall Street. And so, you know, so, so they're hardly at the cutting edge at that point and kind of in initiating change. And um, when we thought about this, one of the things that struck us as, as critically important is even if certain young people as they age become more mellow and less radical and so forth, each generation or each, each era shows that those who are young um, at the time still have a distinctive impact when they are of those um, ages um, before they get to, you know, you, you can pick your, you know, whatever you think, say 30 something or 40 something. And so that's one dimension of it. It's an interesting question whether as people get older and they may be kind of galvanized by movement, whether new causes resonate with, with, for them the way they should, but clearly things that, that, that kind of got them involved and got them exercised when they were younger matter for them. Um, I just wanted to add add one thing, Maya, if I might. Um, so, you know, a lot of the focus uh, in the past, you know, four to six years uh, in terms of, you know, certain certain elements of um, of, of, of public officials uh, has been on schools. Right. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, for for some policymakers. Right. It's really been about limiting what young people learn in school, right? So we've seen uh, the attacks on, you know, the the don't say gay curriculum or, you know, the attacks on, you know, sexuality and gender uh, affirming That's curriculum. Right. But we're also seeing, you know, attacks on civic, civic education, right? The actual removal <laughs> entirely of civic education from some learning spaces. Um, you know, and even, you know, in some states, you know, uh, you know, thinking about sort of restructuring how teachers should be qualified to teach. I mean, there's there's real attacks happening right now in schools. And part of the reason that happens is because um, politicians understand that um, schools and and that what what people learn and in particular what young people learn um, at this very pivotal moment in their lives stays with them. Right. So the reason why they're going after schools is because when when young people learn stuff at a really pivotal age, it doesn't just change how they vote for you know a particular point in their lives, and then it all course corrects and they go back to being stodgy old people. Um, it it transforms them, right? That's why they're going after education because they don't want they don't want generations of fully transformed um, people, right? They want people who are going to be able to you know either maintain the status quo or or roll back, right? Engage um, in this democratic backsliding that um, has become popular among certain politicians. Um, and so I think the fact that they are going full full throttle attack on schools um, is a really good indicator that in fact, um, the, the values, right, that people um, um, develop, right, the values that people adopt, right, in this very pivotal, pivotal moment, um, stay with them, right? And, and that becomes a problem when you know, you don't agree with those values, right? When those values sort of cut against um, the kinds of policies that you want to maintain, right? And that, that, that's why they're going after schools. That might be a great place to end. Really appreciate your writing this book, putting it out there, being an advocate uh, for youth voice um, and sort of the power uh, that young people should have. Be right, well, bye. everyone. Thanks, everyone. Take bye. care.